the outcome is always going to be a, a more well taken care of wholesome child in the end if the parent is involved. And unfortunately, sometimes a parent can't be involved because, you know, the parent might be in jail right. or that they are separated from their children because they can't take care of their, their child. Like I have a student right now and it's, it's unfortunate. I saw him on my zoom calls sometimes within days at a different home, just hopping from home to home. And the, the sentiment that I felt when he walked into my classroom for the first time, because he got to be one of my in-person students, because he was one of the ones that I recommended. And I was like, I need this student to come and be consistently coming into my classroom for in-person learning. And when he met me for the first time, he cried mm-hmm. and I cried and we hugged, even though we weren't allowed to. But that's OK, because it's just that connection was there the whole time. You know, I was that constant face for him, not his father, not his caseworkers, not his foster parents, me. So that's, you know, that's a big responsibility. And sometimes you do have to take that role on. Sometimes the parents can't be there. That's why I say, if you even have an inkling of wanting to take care of your child, of wanting to be there for your child, do Mm -hmm. it. You have that ability. You, if the if you're if it's a matter of resources, then talk to talk to your teachers because they're going to help you out. Welcome to the Ed Gap Evolution Podcast. I'm your host Mariah Phillips. You can call me Mariah because that's my name, and I'm thrilled to have you on this journey with me and all of the spectacular guests who jump on the podcast to give you more options for educating children, so that children have more options for building a magnificent future. The Ed Gap Evolution Podcast is a digital community where parents, educators, and innovators drop the details on how they are using their lives to help children explore the vastness of education beyond the textbook so that we can close America's education gap together. And just in case you didn't get the memo, producing a podcast is a whole lot of work. We're talking schedule coordination, production, the list goes on and on. So in return for bringing you this show every week, we just ask that you always find a way to share and use what you learn on the podcast to enrich children and families everywhere. Alrighty, without further ado, come along with me to meet our very next guest. Today, we're talking to Susana Reyes. She's a dynamic educator in Baltimore, Maryland, where she not only teaches kindergarten at a charter school, but honors her Latinx roots by bridging communication for children and families who may speak English as a second language or not at all. Susana is a community-oriented artist and mom who offers exceptional insight on how to step into the role of educator and breathe new life and ideas into any learning space, even if you've never considered yourself to be, quote-unquote, a teacher. I wouldn't dare spoil the unpredictable events that led up to Susana becoming a full-time teacher because she's right here with us today and ready to tell you herself. So, Susana, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm well. I've spent a whole day working from home. You know, we have one day off out of the week. So Wednesdays are my day off to work from home. Um, so I'm doing well. I'm very relaxed today. <laughs> <laughs> Good. 
That's always nice. Jumping into, you know, what we're here for to talk about education and, um, you know, and teaching and things like that. So we're Facebook friends. And a few weeks back, you shared on a Facebook post um, that one thing you will never stop loving is being a Baltimore City Schools teacher. And I'm wondering, what about being a teacher makes you love it so much? Well, I primarily love teaching because it is so dynamic and you do get to meet so many different people from so many different walks of life. Um, And I've always said that teaching isn't just teaching children, but you're actually an activist as well. You get to be a voice in your community for people who need it most, especially for me growing up um, in Baltimore. I didn't really get to see Mexican teachers. I didn't get to see um, many Black teachers even. So whenever I thought of my teachers, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, that white lady that is at this building that I go to that really cares about me. But um, that's how it always was. So to be able to give voice and presence and um, give space to a population of people that usually get uh, kind of put to the side or whitewashed. Yeah, that's that's just so important. I remember um, I went to public school for elementary school and I, I had one teacher who like in elementary school, we had one teacher who was black and then my mom came and taught at the school. So that that made two. And like you oh, said, wow. it yeah. And like you said, it, you know, it's it's great to have teachers of all nationalities who care about you and your education. But that um, representation is really important, especially when we're talking about, you know, just being able to relate to culturally where the child's coming from. Like, let's say, you know, you have a large population of children of color. So I definitely understand that. And let's not even, you know, to find a teacher in Baltimore of Mexican descent, that was almost unheard of. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm very excited and grateful for what you're doing in schools and for children and families. So we'd love to learn more about your educational history. So let's talk college. What did your undergrad college education look like? Like, what did you want to do with your life at that time? Oh, my gosh, I wanted to do so many things. And the funny part about it is that there were two coinciding parts of what other people wanted me to do as well. So I was always an artist, a writer, just very creative minded. And my mother supported that. She was a folk dancer. Um, She spoke to us in all Spanish at home. You know, she was always very expressive writing poetry as well. She has notebooks that you can like see her scribble a whole bunch of stuff on there and then just find them laying all over the, the house. Whereas my father... He's this very rigid person and, you know, kind of a blue collar worker, worked for GMC for 40 years um, and thought if I go to college, it has to be for a good reason. It has to be for making money. Whereas for me, I wanted to go to college because I loved art. So um, I applied to six different schools. I got accepted to all of them, got scholarships for all of them. Five of them were outside of Baltimore, and then one of them was here in Baltimore, which was um, um, Maryland Institute College of Art. And I ended up going there and choosing that location because my family was here, and I'm very family-oriented. At the time, I wanted to continue with studying art and doing all of those things. And even though I had a very strong voice in my life telling me not to, I still went ahead and did it. Um, Half of it was paid for on scholarships, and then half of it was just me 
not having many meals sometimes, (laughs) like (laughs) busting my ass, um, working really super hard um, on my own independently to make ends meet and also living off campus. So I was one of the first few freshmen, I think one of like a handful of freshmen that was not living on campus. Um, and I always wanted to be an artist. I was always very passionate about it because, um, I would do lots of like really psychedelic looking stuff in high school. And I had a teacher there, Ms. Von Nordic, um, and she helped me figure myself out as an artist and as really as a high schooler because you know when you're in high school you don't know who who you are yeah but um yeah it I decided to go with it because there was nothing else that I could see myself doing and I just I wanted to be a teacher in art as well and I'll I'll tell you a little bit more about that a little later on as to why that didn't happen and it ended up kind of there being a twists in in my journey. That's a a lot to unpack because most students, you know, when their parents tell them, hey, um, you know, I want you to take this path or I want you to do this or that, that's what the student um, gravitates towards, you know? It's like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to do what what my parents say and not necessarily what my heart says. And I think- Right. And I could have done that. I could have listened to them, but had I done that, I would have, I would not have been true to myself. And that's just not who I am. Like, I can't go against the grain when it comes to me being me. Right. And I think it's so cool because it's like you, based off of what we're going to, you know, listeners are going to learn soon. You really encourage kids to do that in the way that you teach as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so let's talk about history. You're a proud Latinx woman who's also bilingual. And so I'm wondering when you were in school, maybe kindergarten through 12th grade, what was your experience navigating the world slash school? Because I'm wondering, was it a piece of cake? Was it tough? Or did you not think about it at all? I know me being a black student and I would you and I went to the same high school, which was like 98 mm. percent um, white. And, <laughs> yes. and so it was Ooh. different. So I'm wondering what your experience was like from kindergarten to 12. It, well, it's funny that you call me a proud Latinx woman because back then I couldn't even say proud. Like I wouldn't even use that word. I would say erase myself. I would say um, always hoping not to be seen, always hoping not to be called on. Like I was that student that would rather separate herself from everybody else because I knew I was different right off the bat. Like I was a little bit on the smart side that automatically made me a little more um quote unquote nerdy. And then later on in my life, I became, I was kind of like the goth chick, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like in high school, I had all the piercings and like the black clothes and stuff. So yeah, it was tough. It was not a piece of cake. Um, Because I went into school not knowing English. My mother, she taught me Spanish. My father, he was angry about that. He fought with her about that all the time. But I went into school um, already somebody wanting to Americanize me, someone at home wanting to Americanize me. So I was given the name Susan when I was born. But my grandmother's name, who I was named after, is actually Susana. So I already had opposing forces right out the womb telling me, you should not be so proud to be Mexicana. You should um, Americanize yourself. You should assimilate. You should basically do what everybody else is is doing here in order to see seem successful. 
and what is so like when it comes to that it's just like one thing about america that i think uh, you know whether folks want to admit it or not that we all appreciate is the diversity you know whether whether no matter the culture i think we, we can talk the great melting pot but then when it comes to actually you know day-to-day accepting people within that great melting pot is not always even within your family like you said right out the womb um and i know in many communities of color that is not always the case especially with you know societal um implications imposed on folks so um it it sounds like it, it was um a complex navigation yes yeah, yeah it was but um, being you, you overcame it. Um, and so now you, you know, I'd love to hear more about your journey to becoming a teacher because it's based on what I've heard so far is a cool story. Um, and it kind of took you by surprise. So could you take us back to the time where you were first introduced to the idea of becoming a teacher? What was going on in your life at that time? We would have to go all the way back because my family is a family of teachers, but I myself never saw myself as being like, a kindergarten teacher because that's what I am. Um, so my sister, she always wanted to be a teacher and I always looked up to her, my sister, Alma. So um, I wasn't following in her footsteps because I wanted to do art. But um, after finishing up my bachelor's, I was applying for my master's and realized how expensive it was going to be um, to be able to get into the master's of art program in teaching at MICA. So instead of doing that, I traveled for about a year. Um, I did a little bit of just all across the country kind of thing. I didn't do anything like outside of the country. And um, I got to meet a lot of different people and it was really nice. But I kind of started thinking about what I really wanted to do because I was making art. I was doing murals. I had some art shows in little places around Fells Point. Um, and I was in a, I was in a committed relationship kind of, but it was with the person that didn't want to have children at the time. And that was always my thing is I really wanted to have kids because yeah. I love kids. Obviously I'm a teacher, <laughs> but aside from being that, like, um, he and I weren't really seeing eye to eye. So I, um, went to one of his art shows and I invited a friend who also went to our high school and I forget her name, um, right off the bat, I forget her name. You forget her name. <laughs> I forget her name. I think it was Victoria. I'm so sorry, but she was invited to the art show and so was her she she brought her um her brother Nick Cabrera and Nick he was talking to me he was like you know what wow I I I think you would do really well at the school that I work at he was like you should apply at the after school program um called pass and I was like okay whatever you know I applied I was like this would be like a little job just to get some money, some income flowing. And I got accepted. So I took the job, was working there. And I was doing my my stuff too, because I've always been into like alternative, healthy eating, that kind of thing. So I would basically share my passions with them and show them how to make juices, how to make smoothies and bring in different kinds of um, hands-on things for them to be able to use in the classroom. Oh, cool. And yeah, and they loved it. And and I got some recognition from that. One of the vice principals saw my work in the after school program and was recommended to me by the 
director of that program. And she said, I think she would be really good for a daytime job as a paraprofessional. And um, Dia Hafiz, she was like, she came up to me. She works at Brems Lane. She's the principal at Brems Lane now, um, which is a charter school in Baltimore as well. And she said, Susanna, you need to apply for this job. You would be a perfect fit. I just know it. And I was like, what? Like me in a school full time? But I was like, you know what? Let me let me try something different. I'm going to see how it goes. And I did. Um, I worked with Sally Bennett and she is like a magician in the classroom. She knows how to keep her students happy, quiet, content. And her kindness just spoke volumes over how she was able to control her um, classroom. So after being able to work with her for about three years, I then got another recommendation from Dia again. She wrote me a letter. It was just this beautifully written letter. And she said that I need to pursue um, something in education as a teacher. And she said that my work was astounding and it needs to be recognized and I need to be getting paid for the kind of work that I'm doing with the students as a para. What a, so, what a recommendation slash order. <laughs> <laughs> right. She was like, do it now. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh. So, um, you know, I, I went into Urban Teachers in conjunction with Hopkins School of Education, applied for my master's, got it in two years, and became a tenure teacher within um, within those two years. Now that I have my own classroom, I've been in my classroom for four years now, and today I got staff person of the month for the first time ever. Congratulations. Yay! Which is really cool. And then um, I got my ratings back from this year as well. In a pandemic, I got highly effective. Like, wow. That made, yeah. So we still got observed. And I would say I got observed a lot more this year in the beginning of the year than I have ever before because and she said it was like virtual I I don't know what they were for but she would write down all these little notes and I think it just it just pushed me like more than I've ever been pushed so speaking of being observed like a lot of us who who don't work in the classroom or who who aren't teachers or who don't work in schools like mm. what what does that mean like what um what happens what why do teachers need to be observed like what is that well, over the years, it's changed in Baltimore. It used to be a little different. Your pay scale did not used to be connected to your observations. But after they found a lot of teachers were slacking and not really um, improving their practice or acting as though the practice wasn't as important over time because they were becoming older, more sedentary, well, that's why they put that new practice in place was they wanted to be able to give teachers ratings and they're called T's. You're hitting all the T's, T1, T, there's T1 through T9. And each T has four levels to it. And you have to hit, they go from completely ineffective to highly effective. And it, and then the subcategories contain details of what you have to hit in the classroom. And they're very particular to how you're teaching your class, how you're talking to your students, the kind of culture you're creating in your classroom. Um, it, it's just every single little thing. So 
Um, it's very nerve wracking because you are being watched not only by your students, but by an administrative person. And also it's going to affect your pay scale. So if you get a highly effective rating, you may go from one um, interval to another interval, which means that you'd be getting paid a thousand or two thousand dollars more than you were last year. I think that's so important for folks to hear because um, sometimes there can be a real disconnect between what goes on in the classroom actually, or, you know, what teachers have to, I don't want to say go through, but what teachers um, have to do in order to make sure that the classroom environment and learning experience stays at a certain level. Um, you, you you can say go through. Okay. You can say go through. <laughs> I go through it. I'm like, well, everybody knows it's it's around observation time. People know. They can tell. They're like, are you okay? Like, what's going on? I'm like, nothing. I'm just, I, I got an observation tomorrow. You need to be, just chill out, be quiet. <laughs> Let me work on this. <laughs> like, and, and I'm a type A personality. I will take my time. I like everything to be perfect, you know? So... Sounds like a, sounds like a good teacher. <laughs> <laughs> so, so like I was saying before, um, we I guess as you know, non teachers slash civilians, we only really see headliner news or what TV portrays teachers to be, but we hardly get a behind the scenes look at what the life of a teacher looks like. We've now heard about observations, but we just don't know what really keeps a classroom running. So, can you tell us maybe three daily or monthly responsibilities that an elementary school teacher has to manage behind the scenes, and and how come? Well, you need to collect data, first of all. That's one of your most important things is that you have to collect that data. And sometimes people are like, oh, they're only teaching to the they're only teaching to the um, to the test. And that's not necessarily true. Uh, Insofar as me being a part of a charter school, we get funding and we get money if we're able to help our students better, if they're able to perform better. Um, So that performance measurement, it helps out in getting money into our students, you know, resources for our kids. That's how we get music classes. That's how we get cool artists to come in and do um, dancing through the curriculum with our students because we're able to uh, get that data collection. And the data collection is not fun. I have to sit there and I have to pretend like this is a fun activity and be like, all right, today we're going to test And I'm going to give you a sticker after we're done doing this, you know, so I have to give like a little incentive because nobody likes tests. I know I don't. Um, So that's my first thing. The second thing is that you are constantly lesson planning. I sacrifice so much social time. I sacrifice time with my son. I am a single mother. So I do sacrifice that time. Um, I get a lot of help from his dad, obviously. He's, He's an incredible father. But it's still hard to have to lesson plan and to sit down and write plans. And because, um, and I had told you before, we are doing like an anti-racist framework, which is a very innovative way of um, approaching how you plan and approaching the types of lessons that you're presenting to students so that they're not just written from the lens of a white person. Um, And we're screening these things in order for them to be like interesting and fun for the kids and also to be made um, for them to have lots of different cultural perspectives as well. And then finally, the third thing I would say is like using a laminator, printing, cutting, 
that kind of thing, which everybody knows we have to do that anyway. But especially in kindergarten, you constantly have to be changing the centers and the centers require um, different things like for literacy or math and their free centers. That's the best one because I don't have to do any planning for that one. I just have to put the stuff into little bins like the train pieces and I have dolls. I have um, magnetic robots. There's eggs. There's an egg making center where you can put little pieces of glitter and sequins and stickers together on an egg and all kinds of stuff where they just get to be hands-on and you know obviously the art thing I always push paint on them but they're really easy they're really easy because they'll say yes to paint at any point of the day of course kindergarten of course (laughs) yes they're like paint where where is it I'm ready exactly nothing can I get I want to (laughs) paint Skylar the other day she was like this is my second time painting I was like ever she was like no just in this classroom and she was right and so she's she's keeping tabs on how many times we're painting in that classroom (laughs) I've got some high expectations I need to be meeting clearly good luck (laughs) Um, right so you mentioned you are a mom you're a single mom so I'm wondering how do you manage motherhood, work, having a life and prioritizing your mental, emotional health in the midst of the COVID era that we're living in? Like, I, I don't I don't have as, nearly as much of that on my plate. And so I'm wondering, how do you manage? Um, I manage in a lot of different ways. So it's just it's a very that's a very difficult. I think that's the hardest thing to tackle as a human being is that we have so many different parts to us and not all of the parts are going to listen when you want them to. Not all of them are going to get along when you want them to. So I try my best to find harmony within myself. And if that means that sometimes I need to just shut the computer off, then I need to do that. If that means that I'm going to go spend some time with my son and we're going to go to the park, then I do that too. Um, And my biggest practice, my biggest practice and my best practice for my mental health has been therapy. Um, I've been in therapy for about 10 years. I recommend that every and anybody do it, whether you think you have mental issues or not. And the reason I say that is because in the society we live in now and how much information is being thrown at us and how many hurdles we have to overcome, even especially with the pandemic having having happened and hit us. Like we're getting $1,400 stimulus checks because we need them. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for my fourth stimulus check. I don't know where that one is, but I, we need that too. Like it's a lot of stress factors that you have to take into consideration. So Um, with my therapist, I practice EMDR, which is, uh, kind of like a slower form of brain spotting and it's being able to process information at a more rapid pace so that you're able to kind of open your wounds up within a session and then close them up, which I was not able to do successfully last year. Like if I opened up a wound during a session, I would have that wound open for like the whole rest of the week or it would take me until the next session to recuperate. So that's just how much healing I've done as a human being. And I wouldn't girl, like it is, it is incredible. And 
And I also want to say this to connect with the fact that I am on medication. Um, I've had to be on medication because I do suffer from bipolar one disorder, which is a a pretty serious mental disability. Um, It doesn't by any means take away from who I am or make me any less of a person than I am. But I've believed that before in my life, before I was ever on medication, because um, it used to bring me to very dark places and to places that I really don't want to revisit ever again. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so so grateful that you're transparent about that on here, because I think it, like you said, whether or not you think, you know, a person might say, oh, I, I deal with mental issues. Therapy is just so important because it helps us to see parts of ourselves that can be really tough to see on our own. And like you said, open and close those wounds and work through those things. And I think that that is so important for us adults because we are, you know, we're rearing children. We're helping children to become who they are. We're, We're around kids. And for a long time, there was such a stigma around receiving um, therapy or, or, you know, anything to do with mental health. But I mean, like who, who else should be going other than folks, you know, we're dealing with kids, we're dealing with families. And even if you don't have a child, it's just that, like you said, we go through so much in this world and to have that extra, extra hand or that extra help is like, why, why, who couldn't benefit from that? Absolutely. And I think that it's really sad that there is not so much of a big focus on mental health and that we are just now shifting in like the, on, on the elementary level, like in our schools and stuff, we're starting to shift that, that perspective to really getting students therapy, to getting them into Kennedy Krieger, to getting them the things that they need in order for them to be more successful down the line. Because as with any disease, the earlier you catch it, the, the better the, the outcome will be in the long run. So the earlier you're able to help a child out, if, they're, if they have rage issues and you can see that and you're taking that data down, you're writing it down every day, you're recording it, you're bringing it to the families, you're bringing it to, the, um, to, the, to your administrator, administrators then then they're going to be able to get the help that they need a lot faster and sometimes there there is still going to be some resistance from families where they will believe there's nothing wrong with the child and a lot of the times that's not the case you know they they I'm I'm working with kids whose whose mothers have been stabbed whose fathers have been shot at whose homes have been shot at who they have seen and experienced um loss in a in, at a very real level right. exactly and so um when it comes to parent caretaker relationships with the school and being involved in their kids education i just heard that you said um you know you can take down the data and present it to the parents and sometimes parents take it and run with it and do something about it and sometimes they do not so what do you think um do you think that it's important or how important do you think it is for parents and caretakers to be involved in their children's education um, or involved with their children's school and why or why not we all know the answer to that question it's just a matter of whether you're doing it mm-hmm. or not. Because, yeah, absolutely. The the caretaker has got to be there. The Even if that means us having to give them the resources to help train them and help them learn how to be a more um, in, inclusive parent, 
a parent that cares about their child, a parent that's going to look out for their child. I think that I've, <laughs> the outcome is always going to be a, a more well taken care of wholesome child in the end if the parent is involved. And unfortunately, sometimes a parent can't be involved because, you know, the parent might be in jail right. or that they are separated from their children because they can't take care of their, their child. Like I have a student right now and it's, it's unfortunate. I saw him on my zoom calls sometimes within days at a different home, just hopping from home to home. And the, the sentiment that I felt when he walked into my classroom for the first time, because he got to be one of my in-person students, because he was one of the ones that I recommended. And I was like, I need this student to come and be consistently coming into my classroom for in-person learning. And when he met me for the first time, he cried Mm -hmm. and I cried and we hugged, even though we weren't allowed to, but that's okay because it's just that connection was there the whole time. You know, I was that constant face for him, not his father, not his caseworkers, not his foster parents, me. So that's, you know, that's a big responsibility. And sometimes you do have to take that role on. Sometimes the parents can't be there. That's why I say, if you even have an inkling of wanting to take care of your child, of wanting to be there for your child, do Mm -hmm. it. You have that ability. You, if the if you're if it's a matter of resources, then talk to talk to your teachers because they're going to help you out. If if that's a good teacher, she'll help you figure out what it is. What is it? What is it? The steps you need to get to where you need to get to. Whether it's getting food on your table, or getting um, the right technology in your house, or getting hot spots, or having clothes on your back all that stuff. Yeah, that is also important. I asked that question because I'm, you know, being transparent, I have a lot of friends or acquaintances on Facebook, on social media. And a, a lot of times I do see teacher bashing. I see a lot of, you know, um, the mm-hmm. teachers don't do this and why can't this happen? And, you know, I, I, I checked in <laughs> on my child's education, you know, it's been eight months. I checked in this and going on. It's kind of like, Eh, you waited eight months to see what was going on. You know, <laughs> did, you, did you see how maybe you could help? So, you know, that that is so funny that you said that because I was on the phone today. There was some fraudulent stuff ha- happening with my card, with my bank card. So I had to close and freeze my account. And I was talking to the um, customer service representative over the phone. And after we finished dealing with what we were dealing with. She was like, she mentioned to me that I was a teacher. I was like, oh yeah. She was like, you know what? Bless your heart. Bless you so much. Bless you. You you know why? Because when I when the pandemic hit for the first time and I had to start homeschooling my children, I said, oh my God, this is what they deal with. And I said, I, 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 I yelled at myself for every time I blamed the teacher is what she told me. She was like, I felt so bad about the fact that I had actually gotten upset at times at the teacher, because now I know how she feels. She's and yeah, and she's a single mother of three children. So I was like, Oh girl, bless your heart. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I was like, no, bless your heart. We were just blessing each other's hearts back and forth. Talk about like, (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, but like, see, those things are so important to highlight because they're real. You know, we need to get these conversations and these sentiments and these revelations out because it's for the kids. You know, if we, um, as you know, whether you're a parent, whether you're a teacher, whether you're someone like me who is neither but just cares. You know, we have to start having these conversations so that we can do um, better for children. And so the last time we talked, you told me about a lesson that you taught um, your kindergarten students about the phases of, I don't know if it was becoming a butterfly or a ladybug, um, but I think mm-hmm. it was really cool because you said you incorporated so many forms of art into that lesson. So I'm wondering why you chose to teach that lesson through hands-on activities rather than only reading about it or watching a film. Well, I would do all of those things because we're a thematic school, which means that if you're part of a thematic school, and even if you're just part of a school that has a lot more leisure towards being able to write curriculum and to create your own lessons and mix up things that you feel is right for your students, like I am working with kindergarten students. So we're working with the moon now and phases of the moon. Um, So we learned all about the moon. We watched a video. We read a little excerpt on it. I've made a presentation for them, a visual presentation. And then we went outside and we collected rocks. And they were like, why are we collecting rocks? And I was like, there are moon rocks. They were like, oh. We went to the moon. We're, we're on the moon. And then they started like imagining that they're on the moon. And we went into the classroom. We started painting our moon rocks and putting glue on it and adding glitter and sequins to them and then drying them up. And we're going to kind of like use them as an exhibition as if they were real rocks from the moon and pretend we're like at the Smithsonian because it's fun. Nobody wants to sit in a classroom where all you're going to do all day long is read old textbooks about people that are dead or just stuff that is irrelevant like that's phased out that's not how you teach anymore the way people are teaching now is even how math is changing um, you're doing it from the core and then you're expanding you have to be able to be creative and innovative because that's what's going to bear more fruit in the end you get creative and innovative thinkers rather than stale thinkers that were taught from a textbook and only know information if they're asked a specific question whereas when you're working with all these other ways of thinking and teaching then you get people that are more well-rounded thinkers and that can come up with answers on their own because their brain was stimulated throughout their educational career rather than they were just taught by to the T by a book, by a teacher that just wants them to know facts and memorize things. Yeah. So it sounds like to me that it's really important for teachers to be creative. You know, that is a, that is a trait to be a great teacher. You have to be creative. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering, let's zoom out a bit. Um, Cause I'm wondering what is the world taking too long to realize about the way that we view the role of a teacher? You know, how what we think of a teacher to be and how are you changing that? Well, first of all, we don't get paid enough. Everybody knows that. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's no secret. <laughs> That's no secret. Um, but I don't know. I, th- I think we're just taking too long to realize that it's we're, we're going to lose good teachers if we continue to ignore the fact that we need more teachers and we need better pay and we need just a change to happen in the kind of recognition that we do get from um, from the outside world. Like, you know, we're living in this scholarly bu- bubble and 
people that don't realize how hard our job actually is. Um, they don't get to, <laughs> I don't know, they, they just, they're, they don't understand. I mean, if you're a pol- politician and you're trying to understand the life and the mind of a teacher, it's going to be super hard for you to want to give up extra money for somebody like that because you don't understand what it's like. You get great pay and, you know, you're doing a different job. Right, exactly. And I mean, we've heard it from you. You know, some people may have known it already, but we've really heard a lot from you during this interview. All of the work. <laughs> All of mm-hmm. the work and, and not only the technical <laughs> or tactical work, but the emotional work. I mean, to care about someone else's child and not just one, but multiple, you know, 24, 24 usually. year after year. I mean, I can't even imagine how many students, a teacher who's worked 10, 20 years has met over their lifetime. Um, and so to put that level of care into a human being who you did not birth is very special. And so um, if there's anyone listening who has not, you know, thought about advocating for your teachers, better pay, just just more knowledge around what the profession is, what teachers do and how they're compensated for it. I suggest like that might be something that we can all start looking into and getting behind our teachers, because when teachers are taken care of, children are better taken care of. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, not actually the end, because now I would love for you to recall a time where a child's words change your life forever. And we'd love to know what was said. Yeah. So I used to work, well, not work for, but I volunteered at a, at my church. Um, I am Catholic, Uh, not a practicing Catholic, but I do believe in God. And I was always very close to my community. So that's why I chose to do it. But it was the first time I ever, ever really got in front of a class, like a class of children, not just like after school kids where we're on a rug, but a real class. And I was writing lessons and they they gave me little books that I could give to them and stuff like that. Um, this little girl in square handwriting, she wrote, you are the best teacher ever. And I remember asking my brother to take a picture of me with it in my hand. (laughs) It was just this note that this little girl had this like little eight year old girl had written to me. And I was like, what? I'm the best at what? Because I wasn't even a teacher. But it just made me feel so good. And I remember loving that note. And I still have it to this day. And yes, I keep lots of notes. I have drawers and drawers full of notes that kids have given me. People tell me, oh, one day you're going to throw them away. Other teachers tell me that. And maybe I might. But um, as for now, as of right now, I'm still, I'm holding on to those little memories. They're special to me. Yes, that is my special thing that I am not throwing yes. away <laughs> and clearly the little girl you know she told you what she predicted the future <laughs> yeah obviously right, she's clearly. a psychic so. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the final question I'd love to talk about building a village around children so let's say you know like we we're talking about earlier a parent isn't satisfied with the ed- education that their child is receiving in a public school Uh, We're wondering what's the first step that parents can take to build a better relationship with the school and maybe even help the school get more resources. I would say that they need to advocate for themselves. I can't tell you how many times I've had parents, um, not my parents, but I've seen parents 
get upset. And I've, I mean, I've had situations myself as well when they weren't happy about us, about me. Um, there was one situation where I did get in, there was a parent who wanted to get into an altercation with me and said, F you in front of my whole entire class. Um, and it was horrible. It, I mean, I cried. It, it was my first year of teaching. And what they ended up doing was they ended up um, listening to the parent. The parent did have mental issues. Uh, she had a mental disability as well. Um, they listened to her. They made sure she was heard out. And they moved to they moved her to a different class because that parent said she felt like I um, treated her daughter differently, which I did not. I treated her daughter just the same. And unfortunately that parent went on to do the same thing to a lot of other teachers in our school. Yeah. But it just depends. I would say definitely make your voice be known, advocate for your child Tell them specifically what your needs are. Ask if there are forms that you can fill out. Um, and just keep keep in touch with not, you know, sometimes the teachers are too busy. If that's the case, then go to the social worker at your school. Go to the therapist. Go to the main office people. I know that the main office people at my school are like more important sometimes than we are when it comes to getting resources that the kids might need like aftercare or um, food pantries, or shelters, things like that. Well, thank you. Um, Because I've talked to quite a few parents and teachers, and it really does seem like sometimes, especially with public schools, and especially in a city like Baltimore, and I'm sure cities around the country, that there's a disconnect between what is available and what a school can do um, for students, and what like the common you know, parent or, or caretaker thinks or knows that a school can do for a student. And um, at the end of the day, y'all, these are taxpayer dollars <laughs> that are going mm-hmm. into school. So you're paying for these resources. <laughs> Please use them. Um, yeah. And so do you have any, any final words for us at all about, you know, are there any organizations that you would like us to support or just anything you have to say to us um, before we, before we wrap up our, our conversation? I just, I really appreciate being heard and um, I hope that other people can kind of take this and if you related to it, great. I hope it maybe helped somebody else out. I know you enjoy being heard and I can tell you just as much we enjoyed hearing you and getting your perspective. And so I hope that you have a wonderful day. Stay strong through the rest of the school year and thank you so much for being the awesome teacher that you are. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you very much. So what'd you think? How will you take what you learned today on the Ed Gap Evolution podcast to make sure that more children and families know that they have more options for building a magnificent future? If you like what you heard and want to get notified when the next episode goes live, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll notify you when the next episode is out. Don't forget to check the show notes where I share information on today's guests. And yes, we do have a website. You can always pop in on us at www.eggapevolution.com. Again, I'm Mariah Phillips, and I leave you with this. Embrace the evolution, y'all.